You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Welcome this morning. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to lead alongside uh, people like Brendan uh, and Michelle and Chris. uh, And we've got, uh, we're looking forward to, for those of you who didn't know, uh, we've hired an associate pastor. I know I announced this a number of weeks ago, but his name is Rick Gilbertson. uh, And he's coming to us all the way from Calgary. Uh, And just a little update on Rick. I know some of you have been praying for him and and Ruth Ann as they prepare to come here and, uh, and join the family. Uh, they, uh, they are kind of in the process of still kind of landing on the deal with a, with a place to live, but they're, I think they're really close. I actually haven't spoken to Rick this week, uh, but uh, uh, they're excited to be coming here uh, in January sometime, uh, and so uh, we uh, will look forward to kind of meeting them and getting to know them a bit more uh, at that point. And so, hey, thanks for being here. Maybe you're, maybe you're here in church and you came kind of with Aunt Sally this morning because she dragged you to church. You'd rather be at home watching uh, the World Cup uh, Qatar is playing Ecuador. Uh, actually, the game's probably almost close to being over, so maybe you did all right. You missed the first half, but uh, hey, maybe you're here and you're like, I've never really been to church, or this is uncomfortable for me. I want you to know that you are welcome uh, in this place. You don't need to believe anything particular to be here. Uh, you don't need to uh, kind of uh, look a certain way or, or, or talk a certain way. You're welcome, because that's what Jesus does. He welcomes people in. Right? And if you felt like coming in here that someone looked at you funny, well, you look back at them a little funny. <laughs> all right? And then give each other a hug uh, because we all belong here. Don't worry. You don't, I'm not going to make you hug anyone this morning. But if you want to, you can. Just know you belong because that's what Jesus does. You know, one of the things that, that uh, I, I kind of, you see happening is where the gospel of Jesus is taking root, where, where people really understand what Jesus was all about. Friendships begin to develop in really unlikely places. The people who don't normally come together, they're together and they have something in common. And that commonality is not what they look like or what they sound like or what they they wear, but it's Jesus. And so we're here together because of what Jesus has done on the cross to offer forgiveness for our sin and to be reconciled to the God who made us and loved us. We've been working through a sermon series called Imagining the Kingdom where we're looking at the parables in, Jesus's, uh, in, in Luke's gospel, uh, the, the parables of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus told us these parables, these stories, in order to spark our imagination, to spark our imagination for what it looks like when God's kingdom of heaven comes and is manifest upon the earth. These stories, they, 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 they guide our imagination. They, they give us an imagination for what it looks like for, for, for the kingdom of heaven to come upon the earth. And today we turn to the next parable in the series in Luke, and it's in Luke chapter 11. So I invite you to turn there with me. Luke 11. If uh, you've, you've got the Pew Bible, it's on page 725 uh, in there, or you can turn in your device to Luke 11. Now, the parable is in verses 5 to 8. But in order to hear the parable correctly, we need to read it in context. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. This is Luke 11, verse 1 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, 
say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus. We don't want empty religion. We want the living water of God. And so, this morning, as we submit ourselves to you, Jesus, we pray that you would build us to be your church in every sense of the word. Lord, my, my prayer at the outset is that you would teach us something today. Maybe there's people here this morning that, that need to reorder their thinking about you. Maybe there's other here this morning that, that need a fresh touch of your spirit. Lord, whether you're speaking to our head or to our heart, we pray that you would change us. Through your living word, who is with us this morning, we, we pray that you'd lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, I love this parable, by the way, uh, and I hope that you will see why by the end of it. But our text in chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1, it begins with a request. A disciple goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, teach us to pray. And, and now what we need to understand is, is that the disciples, there's no doubt that throughout their life, they grew up going to the synagogue, <laughs> Learning and reciting prayer after prayer, like one famous prayer called the Shema, which is a prayer that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a common prayer. The disciples would have grown up going to synagogue, knowing this prayer, praying this prayer. They, they would have known and prayed the Psalms, probably all 150 of them. And the point is, the disciples, they grew up, they, they knew how to pray. So, so why would they say, Lord, teach us to pray? And what's the deal with that? Well, in effect, I think that the disciples are, or this one disciple is asking Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, teach us 
to pray like you pray. Because when Jesus prayed, things happened. When Jesus prayed, heaven invaded the earth. When Jesus prayed, lives were transformed and, and people were healed. When Jesus prayed, peace, it, it, it pierced the chaos. Light extinguished the darkness. When Jesus prayed, dead things came back to life. And so the disciples, they say, Jesus, teach us to pray like that. We want to pray like that. I want to pray like that. And so in everything that follows in this passage, from, from verses 2 to verse 13, Jesus is actually taking his disciples to school, so to speak. He's teaching them a lesson. He's teaching them to pray. And so this morning, my, my prayer is that, that we would allow Jesus to take us to, to school, to teach us to pray. And, and there's going to be a moment a little later in the sermon where you're like, man, this sounds a lot like a teacher. Uh, and I want to go there because there's some things we need to learn and see in the text. But my prayer is that Jesus would teach us something this morning, that he would teach us to pray like he does. It's what the disciples are asking. And so Jesus goes on and he begins to teach them. And, and now you likely recognize the, 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 the prayer that Jesus teaches the disciples in verses 2 to 4, right? It's a familiar prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. We pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us today our daily bread. Uh, forgive us our sins, for we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. These are likely familiar words to you. It's a familiar prayer. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is, is that Jesus isn't teaching this prayer in order to give us the right words to say when we pray. It's not about getting the right words. And, and Jesus isn't also teaching us kind of a, the right formula to pray. Right where we, we pray that God's name would be glorified and, and that then we pray for our provision and, and then we pray for, uh, for forgiveness and all of these things. There are right words in here and there is a great formula, but, but I want to submit to you that this is, is not primarily what Jesus has in mind. I want to suggest to you that there is one thing that he wants us to learn in this lesson in prayer. He has a single focus, a single point, and it's this. Jesus wants to teach us all about the one to whom we pray. He's not concerned about getting the words right. He's not concerned about a right formula. He's concerned that we understand the one that we are praying to, his character. Why do I think that? Because it's how he begins and ends his lesson. Look at the text. In verse 2, he begins with the word Father. He's saying something to describe the one that we're praying to. And then, at the very end of the lesson, in verse 13, again, in verse 13, he's talking about who? He's talking about our Father who is in heaven. And so, you've got Jesus' teaching on prayer between verses 2 and verse 13, and it begins with God the Father, and it ends with God the Father. They're like bookends. And I want to suggest to you that everything that we read in between is all primarily focused on the character of God the Father, the one to whom we pray. Mark this, church. From beginning to end, Jesus' lesson on prayer is an invitation to know the one to whom we pray. 
Think about that for a moment. The most important thing that Jesus wants you to know as he teaches you about prayer is the character of the one you're praying to. It's the most important thing. It's the most important thing because if we're off base there, then everything else is off base too. If you have the wrong idea about the God that we pray to, you will come to the wrong idea about his kingdom come on earth. If you think that God is angry and punishing, then you will invariably seek a kingdom on earth that reflects that kind of king. But if we know God is holy and gracious, then we will imagine living into a kingdom like that that is both holy and gracious. You see, Jesus' lesson on prayer is about the most important thing. It's about the one that we pray to. And so Jesus says in verse 2, when you pray, say, Father, Father. This first word speaks volumes. You've probably heard many sermons, maybe even just on this one word. God is our heavenly Father. And now, when you hear me say that, in our context, we don't really bat an eyelash to that, do we? It's quite a common way of referring to God for us. But in Jesus' day, this would have been scandalous. It would have been blasphemous. God was the Holy One. He was an all-consuming fire. He dwelt in unapproachable light. He was the Lord Almighty. God was so holy that you could not look upon his face and live. The Jews of Jesus' day, they wouldn't even speak God's name, for he was so holy. So to call the Holy One something common, like Father, it was scandalous. In John's Gospel, we're told about a group of people who got together and they wanted to have Jesus executed because he called God his Father. And that's how God wants us, or Jesus wants us, to know the one that we're praying to, to know him as Father. My daughter, Sophia, she likes to tease me. Uh, and sometimes when I come home from being out for a while, she'll hear me come through the door and she'll yell downstairs. She'll say, hey, Keith. <laughs> she likes to tease me. And, and in that moment, we have a dialogue about how beautiful my name is, right? Her name's Sophia and mine's Keith. Like it sounds like you've just dropped a brick on the ground or something like that, right? And Sophia, she loves to call me Keith when I come through the door and and I think, in part, she likes to do this because she likes what comes next. Because you know what comes next, of course, right? I say, Sophia, I'm your dad. You call me dad, right? And here's the thing. I am Keith, yes, but to Sophia, I am so much more than that. I'm her dad. And that's what Jesus wants us to know about the one that we are praying to, to us, Get this, and this is scandalous to us. God is more than an all-consuming fire. God is more than an unapproachable light. God is more than the Lord Almighty to us. God is Father. He's our Father. 
And now, I recognize, and I want you to know that, that I believe all of us here, we all have father issues. Every single one of us here, we all have daddy issues. And I think sometimes these, these issues that we have with our fathers can fall into one of two categories. Now, first, maybe you grew up with, with a parent who was cold and, and distant or unavailable. They were absent. They, they weren't even around for your life. And maybe their neglect as a parent has has really negatively impacted your view of who God is. And if you're someone who grew up like that, I I need you to know that Jesus has come to redeem your childhood. He's come to reconcile you to a perfect heavenly parent who loves you, who is not absent, who's not negligent, who's not abusive or controlling or harmful. He's a father who's available and attentive and actually wants to be with you because he likes you. Yes, he loves you, but he also likes you. No matter where you've been or what you've done, Jesus has come to redeem your childhood, to introduce you to the Father. And there's a second category of daddy issues that, that, that we struggle with, and, and these ones are actually a little harder to see sometimes. Sometimes we come to the point where, where we think we actually don't need a good father anymore. Maybe you, you've come to the point where you don't think you need someone to teach you or to help you or to correct you or to love you because, you know, let's face it, we're all grown up now, right? But mark this church. We all need a heavenly father. We always will. We need not simply his closeness and his care, but we also need his authority in our life. We need his discipline. We need his wisdom. Because, quite frankly, we don't see everything that he sees. We don't know everything that he knows. We, We need a heavenly father. I was saying to the worship team before we started uh, this morning that there's this, this thing in Scripture that, that I noticed this week that, that in the Old Testament, when, whenever the faithful people were, were referred to, they, they were often called the people of God, right? The people of God, the people of God. This is the, the faithful followers of God. But, but then in the New Testament, after Jesus comes, the language changes. Have you noticed that? We're no longer called the people of God. Do you know what we're called? The children of God. Because that's what Jesus does. He takes us from from being people within a kingdom to being children of the king. It's the gospel. It's what Jesus came to do. He came to restore us, uh, not simply as people within a kingdom, but, but to be children to the king. It's, it's like the different, maybe there's some royalists out here. Uh, any royalists who grew up kind of loving British culture, right? My parents are from the UK, uh, and, and, and my parents, uh, they grew up kind of watching the royals. They were citizens of the United Kingdom. <laughs> but could you imagine the moment when, if, if this were to happen, where, where, where the king now, or, or, or the queen previously, would call up my parents and say, you know what, I know you've been citizens in the kingdom, but today I want to call you my child. I want you to be princes and princesses. What? That's what Jesus does. Takes us from being the people of God to being the children of God. And it takes the love of God to do that. 
That's what Jesus did on the cross. Galatians 4, 6, 7 says, God sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And Abba is, is an Aramaic term for father. He's saying, Abba, Father. So we are no longer slaves, but God's children. Mark this, church. If you want to pray like Jesus, come to know the Father that Jesus prays to. Which brings us to the parable in verses 5 to 8. The parable in verse 5 to 8 is, is, can be a tricky one to understand, but hopefully this is where we're, I'm taking you to school here for a moment. So please, humor me. Uh, some of you, I, I got a few parents, I got a teacher in the front row, so... Here we go. I'm watching you. I'm watching actually you in the back row uh, there uh, because I know that's where all... Uh, Troy made a anyways, uh, mention about back row people. I love back row people as well. Uh, and so, but we know, Adam, I'm watching you. I'm going to take you to school here for a minute because there's something we need to learn about this parable. I don't want you to miss it. The parable is a story about a friend who is standing outside another friend's house at midnight. And the friend outside is asking for some bread because they, they have a guest at their home and they're unable to, to, to provide the customary meal. And so they're standing outside their friend's house at midnight asking for bread. But the friend inside turns the person away, saying that they're all tucked in for the night. Okay, we got the story. And now here's the problem. We miss what Jesus is saying here because we hear it with our 21st century Western ears when it was spoken to 1st century Eastern ears, okay? We miss it. And today we typically interpret this story as Jesus teaching us to be persistent in prayer, right? Maybe you've heard the story and this is how you've heard it. In fact, in some of your Bibles... When you read in verse 8, uh, if you're reading from like a New King James Version or the, the New Revised Standard Version, it will actually use the word persistence. It, it, it will describe the parable saying, uh, because of your persistence, surely the person inside the house will get up and give you what you need, right? Historically, we, we've, we've understood this parable to mean that the person outside is like us praying. And the person inside is like God responding to our prayer. And, and for that, we're on the right track. But we think that the parable is about us on the outside persistently knocking on the door. And then it's our persistence that causes the person inside to get up and give the food that is required. This is how we hear the story. But I want to suggest to you that this is not what Jesus is saying at all. It's not at all what he's saying. This parable is not about our persistence in prayer. Rather, it's about what? The Father. It's about the one we're praying to. It's actually about what God the Father does when we pray. So, I want to show you the two things we need to, to know to hear Jesus accurately in the text. The first is this. In the original language, the parable is presented as a rhetorical question. The parable is a story, yes, but it's given as a rhetorical question, a question that actually doesn't even need, need an answer because the answer is so obvious, right? You're familiar with rhetorical questions, right? It's like if I were to ask, is the Pope Catholic? It's a rhetorical question, right? 
Does Brendan give the best announcements? It's a rhetorical question. We're not sure. It's yes. The answer is yes. Um, right? This, this parable is given as a, a, a rhetorical question. Uh, this is how it's presented. So in effect, Jesus says this. Could you ever imagine a friend going to another friend at midnight and asking for bread but then uh, for their guest? But then the person inside calls out saying, don't bother me, the door is locked, we're all in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. And Jesus asks rhetorically, could you imagine something like that taking place? And here's the problem that we face. The problem is that the answer, the obvious answer to us is actually the opposite obvious answer to the people who heard Jesus' question the first day. (laughs) For us today, we hear the question and we say, yeah, of course we could imagine something like that. I mean, think about this. You're in bed, you're sleeping, it's midnight, and you get a text. And the text is a friend of yours that said, you know what, I got a buddy in town and I need a bit of bread. Can you help me out? What do you do? Do not disturb, right? You wish you had put it on before so that they saw when they were texting you that your do not disturb's on, right? Am I right? Like, this is not an uncommon thing to do. In fact, maybe it happened to you last night. (laughs) We can imagine, when Jesus said, could you imagine a scenario like this? For us, we would say, yes, we can imagine a scenario like that. Of course we can. But for Jesus' audience that day, they would have thought the complete opposite. The complete opposite. Not in their wildest dreams could they ever imagine the man inside the house not getting up to give the other man bread. In fact, if if the man inside turned the man outside away, he would be bringing shame upon his entire household. Not only that, he would be bringing shame upon the man standing outside asking for bread. And not only that, he would be bringing shame upon the whole town. Why? Because a visitor has come to the town. And that visitor requires hospitality. It's the way that the culture worked. And so when Jesus asked, can you imagine this? They would have thought, of course we can't. It would be despicable. It would be shameful. Which brings me to the second thing we have to understand in order to hear Jesus accurately. And it's the word that he uses in verse 8. It's a Greek word, and it's the word anideon. Let me read it to you in the context of what Jesus says in verse 8. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he, the man inside the house, will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of anideon, there's the word, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, a little time out here. If you have a study Bible, uh, you'll see that there's a little asterisk beside where anideon is, because it can mean multiple things. This is where we get into some challenging interpretation. Okay? But here's what I want you to see. For a long time, people thought that the word anideon meant persistent. So that's why we have translations that that talk about our persistence in prayer. But here's the thing. An ideon did not mean persistence when Jesus spoke these words. About 200 years later, it did come to mean that. Because words are fluid, right? 
Their meaning does change over time. And that happened with this word. But when Jesus spoke it, the word didn't mean anidion at all, which means if you were to open a dictionary in the first century and look up this word anidion, it wouldn't say persistence. That wouldn't be the definition. It would say something like shamelessness or the avoidance of shame. Anidion is about avoiding shame. It's about preserving someone's honor. It's about saving face in an honor-shame culture. And so that's why, are you guys still with me? I told you, we were going to go to the school here. I, I warned you about this. Adam, you're doing great up there. I can see it. Way to go. Um, that's why in some of, some of our, our, the NIV translation, for instance, it takes this word anideon and it talks about, about someone's uh, uh, shameful, uh, audacious, or shameless audacity. It, it, it kind of gets this, this idea of, of, of honor, shame, and it applies it to the person who is outside the door, i.e. the person praying. But the question really becomes, is that who anideon is describing? The question becomes, whose an ideon is Jesus referring to here? Is Jesus speaking about the shameless audacity of the man outside the house who's knocking, asking for bread, i.e. the people who pray? Or is he speaking about the shamelessness of the man inside the house, i.e. the one to whom we are praying? Whose shamelessness does Jesus want us to see in the story? Okay, now humor me for a minute. We're still in, in class. Let's look at the sentence structure. I've broken it down. In Jesus, verse 8, Jesus, there are six clauses that he gives in, in, in explaining this parable in verse 8. And each clause has an intended subject. Look, look at the clause. There's six. So first, first clause. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up. Clause two, and he will not give you bread. And three, because of his friendship. Clause four, yet because of an ideon. Clause 5, he will surely get up. And then clause 6, and he will give you as much as you need. Okay? Six clauses, each has an intended subject. The subject of clause 1 is who? The man inside. Of clause 2, the man inside. Of clause four, 3, the man inside. Clause 4, that's what we're trying to figure out. An ideon, who does it apply to? Clause 5, the man inside. Clause 6, the man inside. The question is... Who is an ideon attached to? I mean, it seems obvious to me. It's not the man outside. It's the man inside the house. It's not about the man who is asking for bread. The story is about the one that he is asking the bread of. The story isn't about those who, who pray. It's about the one that they are praying to. And so listen to the verse again. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he, the man inside the house, will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet to preserve his good name, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Why does he get up? He gets up to preserve the honor of his name. To preserve the honor of his name, he will surely get up and give you bread. He'll give you even more than that. Listen, church. Even if the man inside is not even a friend to the man outside, he will certainly get up and give him bread because the man inside is bound and determined to preserve his good name. 
He's not willing to lose face. The man inside, he will certainly get up and give bread because you know what? He doesn't want to get up the next morning, walk into town, and suffer the ridicule of people in the village who are asking you, why didn't you show hospitality to our friend like an honorable citizen? For the sake of his good name, this man will surely get out of bed and give the person outside whatever he needs. Do you hear it, church? When we come to our caring Heavenly Father and we ask Him to meet our needs, He will surely get up and give us what we need. And God doesn't answer our prayer because of our own persistence. He doesn't answer us because we get all the words right in the right order. He doesn't answer us because we make an eloquent speech. He doesn't answer our prayer because of our efforts. And mark this, he doesn't even answer our prayer because of our own holiness. Why does he answer? He answers for the sake of his good name. He will surely get up and answer our prayer because he will not dishonor his name. God always lives up to his name, right? We pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. May may you live into the fullness of your name, God. It's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And so when we come to the Father and pray, he surely gets up, not because of our effort or our goodness, but because of his I mean, it's the gospel, isn't it? Everything good that we receive from the Father is not because of our effort. In fact, we have no ability in our own. (laughs) But God, the loving one, the one who was powerful enough, stepped into our need, and he said, I'm going to love you all the same. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. It's the character and nature of God. He answers us not because of our persistence, but because of his good name. It's the one to whom you pray. And because of this, Jesus goes on in his lesson, and he says, go ahead, ask, seek, Knock in prayer to the Heavenly Father. Your prayer doesn't fall on deaf ears. For those who ask and seek and knock on the door of prayer, they will not be disappointed because God will surely get up and give them what they need. Every time. Every time? God answers our prayer every time? Yes. Every time. And sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it feels like we pray and nothing happens. God is silent. But when we pray, God answers every time. Look at verse 11 to 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion If you then, though you are evil by comparison, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give give the Holy Spirit? How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
When we ask God in prayer, no matter what we ask him, he answers every time by giving us what we need the most, himself, his presence. I read a story this week about a woman and the longing that she felt for her father of following her parents' divorce when she was young. She writes about one of her most vivid memories growing up as a child, and this is what she says. I would sit on the edge of my bed, faced, or face angled toward the window, eyes peeled for my daddy. My heart would race as a new set of headlights approached, thinking maybe it was him, before sinking as the car passed into the distance. Still, I held on to hope. From the time my parents divorced, I looked forward to these planned outings with my dad. Where is he? Did he forget about me? Tears would gather as I realized he wasn't coming again. More than once, I thought, I must not really matter. He must not really love me. I was longing for a relationship with my father. Church, your true father is not like that. When we call out to him, he will surely get up and answer because of his good name. And he will give every longing human heart what we truly need, himself, his presence, his peace, his wisdom, his courage, his strength, his grace, his love. I love this parable. The disciples ask, Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus answers saying, let me tell you about the one you're praying to. Call him Father, for through me you're his children. And when you call on him, because of his good name, he will surely get up and give you what you need. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to know the Father like you knew the Father. And Lord, I don't know what that looks like in the lives of the individual people who are here. But Lord, I want to do something maybe audacious this morning. And if it's irreverent, I, I, I humbly submit it to you, Lord Jesus. But Father, I want to put the honor of your name on the line this morning. Because I know there are people in this, this room, uh, people at home, who have prayed and prayed and they feel like those prayers have gone unanswered. And Jesus, in all honesty, the, the Father that they feel like they're praying to is, feels distant. And so, Lord, I bring them before you and I ask, Lord Jesus, I ask, Father, that for the sake of your name, 
you would give the fullness of your love and presence to them even in this moment. Holy Spirit, we ask for you. Because we know that we're broken vessels, all of us. We're broken vessels. We all have dad issues. And so, Holy Spirit, we just we want to wait on you and ask that you would fill these broken vessels with your presence, with your love, with your healing. We pray for good gifts from our good Heavenly Father. Because we know that our hope is only found in you. And Lord, as we receive your love, your embrace, your care, we respond with hearts of thanksgiving. Because we're your children. And we love you.